Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station Podcast, a 15 to 20 minute show about learning the Rust programming language. This is episode 16, Ref Cells and Code Smells. Some news and follow-up. The first community survey came out on June 30th, which was after I recorded with Rafe Levine, but before I was able to release the second half of the interview. I'll link the blog post associated with that in the show notes. There's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. Second, Rust 1.10 came out on July 7th. The big highlight features from this release included, first, stable support for defining what should happen when a panic occurs in your code. Do you unwind nicely, or do you just abort immediately? Previously, Rust always unwound nicely. Now you can tell it to just abort instead. That's a nice improvement for people writing things like operating systems, but also, depending on what you're doing, it may be helpful in normal cases. It gives you a roughly 10% faster compilation time, and it gives you roughly 10% smaller binaries. Second, the compiler got less memory-hungry, and it got faster. So, hooray! Third, the compiler knows how to generate a new kind of dynamic library now, one that's much better suited for embedding Rust in other contexts, like using it as a library for some piece of functionality in another application, a CDILIB. Fourth, this was the first release of Rust which is able to be built using stable Rust. You no longer have to use a nightly version of the language to build the language itself. Rust 1.10 was built with Rust 1.9. The upcoming Rust 1.11 will be built with Rust 1.10, and so on. That's pretty exciting, and it means that development on Linux distributions can happen much more easily going forward, because versions of the compiler that are not the nightly version are the kinds of things that will be shipped in package managers. Next, RustUp 0.3.0 came out on July 14th. It fixed a bunch of bugs, it improved the user interface in some small, but I can say from experience, nice ways, and it laid the foundation for using Rust TLS, a TLS library written in Rust and therefore hopefully safer and more reliable than the existing C-based TLS implementations out there. Next, the JetBrains Rust IDE, currently just called IntelliJ Rust, an open-source project, but with active support from JetBrains developers, got a website, intellij-rust.github.io. You should check it out. More importantly, if you already use any JetBrains IDE or you've just been looking for a Rust IDE, you can and should install the plugin and play with it in any of the free-to-use versions of JetBrains IDEs, and it's coming along very nicely. Another fun bit of news from the community... Carol Nichols and Jake Golding launched Integer32, a Rust-focused consultancy. To my knowledge, which admittedly is very incomplete, this is the first such consultancy out there. But I suspect it won't be the last, since the number of tech companies publicly discussing their Rust usage is going up all the time. Finally, there's a really interesting-looking talk on a tool called Tango that lets you do, quote, literate programming, unquote, in Rust. That is, you write in Markdown with GitHub-style code snippets of Rust, and the net result is something compilable as actual Rust. I'll probably be doing some of this myself going forward. I'll link both the talk and the source in the show notes. Now, let's talk about cells and ref cells. In the last normal episode, we talked about smart pointers, the more ordinary ones like box or vec, and also the reference counting ones like RC and ARC. 
We also briefly mentioned when you'd want to use those. And then in a happy turn of events, which I didn't plan, those same topics came up quite a bit in my interview with Rafe Levine. I was already planning to come back to this topic, but the interview made it even more appropriate, and I had several listeners request it explicitly. So today we're going to talk about using the smart pointer types with a bit more detail than we covered last time, and specifically we're going to talk about dealing with the cell and ref cell types with immutable containers, which have mutable contents. I'll explain more of what that means in just a minute as we dive in, but one thing to keep in mind... Although it's important to know how these things work, doing what we're talking about today adds a lot of complexity. If you can just avoid having to deal with these smart pointer approaches in any given instance, if you can just let the Rust compiler help you out with the normal ownership and borrowing semantics, you should do that instead. You will be glad you did. There are definitely times when you need to opt into these more complex things you can do with smart pointer types, but you should not default to them. You should treat them like a code smell, the idea of something that isn't necessarily bad in and of itself, but which can be a signal that something is wrong if you see too much of it. You can think of it like this. If you smell a little bit of fish, it's probably fine. In fact, it might even be good. If you smell a lot of fish, it's nasty. The same thing goes for code smells. Using a box here or an arc there is fine. It's even good sometimes. But if you see those everywhere in a given code base, well, there's probably a better, more rustic way to approach the problem. One that will perform better, one that will give you easier errors to diagnose at compile time instead of at runtime, and one that will hopefully be easier to write and maintain as a result. Still, there are good times to use these. We talked back in episode 15 about how you can use the RC and ARC types to handle shared data within a thread and between threads, respectively, RC within a thread, ARC between threads. We also talked a little bit about how to deal with the case that you need to get at the data in them using their getMute methods, if there's only one strong reference and no weak references to the data. All of that is well and good, but it still left us with an important problem, one which might not have been apparent then, but which will become apparent and very annoying if you actually spend any time using these types. What if you need the data, at least potentially, to be mutable from multiple places at runtime? Let's say, for example, that you're building some data structure which multiple threads need to be able to access and where you can't know at compile time whether the reference count to them will be zero. Let's imagine even further that you've declared the wrapping smart pointer type, the RC, or in the case of cross-thread work, the ARC, as immutable because you want to make sure that no one is changing it willy-nilly. How would you do this? This issue, in fact, can come up with smart pointer types in general. It doesn't have to be just the RC or ARC types. Imagine you had a VEC wrapping some other struct type you'd defined. We'll call it a thing. And you wanted the VEC to be immutable so that different clients could read the contents of the VEC but not modify it. But you also wanted this thing struct you'd defined within the VEC to be mutable. We literally cannot do that in the default case. If a VEC instance is immutable, by default so is everything it contains. As usual, you can look at the show notes for the episode to see this in practice. There's a commented outline in one of the example methods, which just won't compile if you uncomment it for this reason. Trying to get at mutable data within an immutable container won't work normally. 
So whether we're dealing with simple vectors of data or whether we're sharing data between threads, there are times when we might want an immutable container containing mutable data. This is where cell and ref cell come in. Going back to that thing, we could wrap that custom struct inside a cell or a ref cell. And then if we wanted to, say, iterate over the items of the vector and update the contents of each thing struct we had defined within it, we could do that. With either cell or ref cell, we could just wrap each item in the corresponding new method when adding it to the vector. If we had a vector named my list of things and our struct named thing with its own bog standard new method, we would type my list of things dot push to add a new item to the vector, cell colon colon new to create a new cell type, thing colon colon new. And we would add a thing wrapped in a cell to the vector. The type of that vector would then be a vector wrapping a cell wrapping a thing, spelled vec angle bracket cell angle bracket thing to closing angle brackets. As you can hear, we've dialed up the complexity of that type quite a bit in order to be able to get this flexibility. Now the difference between cell and ref cell is whether we're dealing with data that can be copied simply or not. More specifically, we can use the cell type whenever we're wrapping up data types which implement the copy trait. And the copy trait simply defines how to do a straightforward copy of the underlying data. One easy way to think of it is anything you could trivially mem copy in C, you can implement copy for in Rust. So in general, value types can always implement copy, but reference types may or may not be able to. String, for example, does not implement copy because it uses vec, and vec doesn't implement copy, and in fact, I don't think it can because its size can change dynamically. And, well, you couldn't mem copy something whose size can change dynamically you have to know the size itself to be able to copy it. The upside of this restriction, though, is that cell doesn't have any cost at runtime. It's not doing anything special because it only wraps stack-allocated value-type data. So it gives you a way to say, hey, these things here, they can be mutated freely, and the compiler can know that it's still safe. You might write a bug around this if you incorrectly assumed that the data was immutable and it was actually mutable, but that would be a logic issue. It would not be a memory safety issue. So how do you use a cell? Well, after you've wrapped something up in it, like we talked about a minute ago, you can just use the get and set methods to read or write the value respectively. In our vec wrapping a cell wrapping a thing example, if thing just had a simple contents field which contained an integer, we could double it by just doing a for loop over the vector. Each step through the iterator would give us a cell wrapping a thing, then we could use the get method to get the old thing value and the set method to set the new thing value. We would update thing.contents there. And when we're done, we'll have updated the value inside each thing, inside each cell, inside each vec. All the while, we'd only have a standard immutable reference to the vector itself. And we won't have incurred any runtime costs by doing this. We'll just have let the compiler know by using the cell that it is safe to mutate these particular fields, even though you can't satisfy the borrow checker directly because you have an immutable reference to the vector. This is pretty neat we have been able to have a mutable structure inside an immutable container. Now, by contrast with the cell type, ref cells do have a runtime cost. 
Why? Because ref cells do runtime checking that what you're doing is safe, whereas cells do compile time checks. The Rust book describes the ref cell as being something like a single-threaded mutex. That is, a data structure which requires you to lock it before you write to it, as a way of signaling to any other piece of code trying to read from or write to it that it isn't safe to do so, and then to unlock it when you're done so that other accessors can get at that data again. In other words, it's kind of like doing borrow checking at runtime for situations where you can't do it at compile time. Any type which cannot implement the copy trait, but which does need interior mutability, is a candidate for this. But you have to think carefully about that trade-off. You're incurring a runtime cost. The other big downside is that because we defer some of the error checking to runtime, you can end up with a panic instead of a compile error. When you need it, you need it though, and the upside is that you're still getting good guarantees about the behavior. It's far better to get a panic and a graceful shutdown of the program with a nice stack trace as long as you're not using that fancy new abort option than to have the program explode somewhere, and probably somewhere apparently unrelated, because you mismanaged the memory. Not, of course, that any of us, me in particular, have ever had that happen on legacy C or C++ code bases we've maintained. No. By which I mean, of course, that's a very common problem to face there, and RefCell gives us a graceful way to get out of it. Using a RefCell is fairly similar to using a cell, but instead of using the get or set methods, instead we use the borrow and borrow mute methods. If we just need to read the data, we'll call borrow, and if we need to write some data, we'll call borrow mute. As those names make clear, we really are doing borrow checking just at runtime. If we borrow somewhere in our code, we can borrow other places as well. Just like with compile time borrow checking, it's perfectly safe for lots of different parts of our code to read memory at the same time. However, if any other part of our code has called borrow mute, it is not allowed for other parts of our code to try to use either borrow or borrow mute, for the same reason that you're only allowed to have one mutable reference and zero other references in normal compile time borrow checking. If you do try to call borrow or borrow mute on some piece of data which already had a mutable borrow out, that's when you'll get a panic. One upshot of all of this is that if you have a type wrapped in cell or ref cell, you only need a reference to some data, not a mutable reference to it, and not a unique reference to it like we usually would to satisfy the compile time borrow checker. That's what gives us the flexibility we need around things like vectors. Given that we don't want to default to using cell or ref cell, how do we know when we should use them? If we can just use normal references and borrowing and let the compiler strictly check all of it, we should always just do that. But if you can't do that, or in the case that it becomes especially difficult, then we look at these two options. Do you reuse a given piece of data all over the place so that keeping track of borrows is hard, maybe even impossible, but you only mutate it fairly rarely? It might be a good candidate for wrapping it up in a cell or a ref cell, depending on whether it's easily copyable or not. And if it implements copy, you always stick to cell. There's no particular reason to use ref cell if you can use cell. One additional concern there, if you have a large data structure you're dealing with, See if you can wrap just part of the type in cell rather than wrapping the whole thing. That way you won't incur the cost of copying a whole large data structure around, only the particular element of the structure which needs to be copied. If you have a type that can't implement copy at all, or 
you have a subcomponent of the type which needs to be changed but cannot implement copy. And therefore, you cannot replace the data for free at runtime, as it were. Then you should look into using a ref cell instead. Either way, you'll still get good guarantees about how the program behaves. And even if you are using a ref cell, the performance penalty is fairly small and deterministic. Last but not least, if or when something does go wrong, you'll usually have a pretty good idea where and why from the nice unrolling you'll get from panicking. And that's it for cell and ref cell. Actually using them in practice will take some practice, of course, but they're not super complicated once you understand what they're doing. Next time, we'll follow this up with the discussion of the borrow and asref traits, and then we'll pull together the borrow and copy traits we touched on today to talk about the cow type. Hint, it is not a large mammal that we have in mind there. On a personal note, I want to say thank you to everyone who listens to the show. I was amazed to see that between new episodes and the back catalog, New Rust Station had over 11,000 downloads in June, and it had already had over 8,000 by mid-July. Back when episode zero came out back in September, there were 76 downloads the whole month. That jump amazes me, and it definitely inspires me to keep at it. The Rust community is fantastic. So thank you all for listening. Another thing which continues to inspire me is the sponsors, whose generosity is a huge part of making it possible for me to keep making the show. So thanks, as always, to Chris Palmer, Daniel Collin, Eric Fulmer, Rafe Levine, and Vesa Kailavirta for sponsoring the show this month. You can see a full list of sponsors in the show notes and the top tier of sponsors on a dedicated page on the website. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can set up recurring contributions at patreon.com slash newrustation or one-off contributions at a variety of other services listed at newrustation.com. There at newrustation.com, you will also find links to the news items from the top of the show and some examples of using smart pointers ergonomically as we discussed today. You can also follow the show on Twitter at newrustation or follow me there at Chris Kreicho. You can help others find the show by rating and reviewing it on iTunes, recommending it in another podcast directory, tweeting about it, or just telling a friend. Please respond on social media, in the threads for the episode, at the Rust user forum, or on Reddit, or by sending me an email at hello at newruststation.com. I always love hearing from you. Until next time, happy coding. Happy coding.